Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Robcast. Let's try something new, shall we? I had this idea for this episode. I've never done anything like this, and at first I was kind of like, I don't know, that might not work. And if it doesn't work, it'll really not work. But then I ran it by Kristen, and she said, oh my word, that's a great idea. People would love that idea. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to try it. Uh, before we do, though, this weekend I'll be in Birmingham, Alabama and Charlotte, North Carolina for the Introduction to Joy Tour. And then in May, I'll be in Fresno, haven't been to Fresno, and Santa Barbara. And then in June, tickets just went up for Chattanooga, Knoxville, and Louisville. So uh, those are all places I'm coming in the near future. And of course, it's always more fun when you're there. Oh, and speaking of when you're there, our next Largo show here in Los Angeles is May 14th, and you can get tickets at largo-la.com, and Largo shows, I mean, what more can I say? And I got all this new, I got this whole new show I'm going to do that, <laughs> I know, it'll bomb, or it'll be like, Wow. We're on to something here. So, you know, May 14th, we'll find out. And, uh, oh, also Blood, Guts, and Fire is now out and completed. It's four parts. It's 12 hours of me taking you through the book of Leviticus. And all the ways in which Leviticus is so 2019, it will blow your mind. Now, all that said, here we go, my friends. The idea I had came from a uh, question somebody asked a couple cities ago. Somebody said something about one of my books. Uh, they asked something specific, and I answered. I began by answering, I don't know. I haven't read that book. And we all laughed really hard, because if you wrote a book, obviously you've read it. But I meant it in this other sense of when you write a book, you spend years with it, and then you go through multiple drafts and versions, third version, fourth version, fifth version, sixth version, months and months and months of reworking and crafting and shaping and honing. And then when you get down to the end, uh, there are copy editors who comb through the, the manuscript. And these are professionals whose jobs are to find any slight grammatical inconsistency, any typo, obviously a misspelling, anything with grammar. And these people are amazing. I mean, they go through draft after draft after version after version. And then at the very end, you get a date and time of when, like as the author, you can still get your hands on it. You know what I mean? Like you can still make changes. And I often at the end, because I'm looking for anything, maybe the copy editor missed, anything the editor missed. Are there any like tiny little changes I want to make? And at the end, I'll sometimes read it like, just read the book through and then read it again. And then I still have a couple hours left. I'll read it again just in case I catch something. Because uh, all those little details, they matter. Um, so by the time a book goes to print, you've lived with it for so long. It's not like you're going to pick it up and read it for fun. But what happened a couple weeks ago when somebody asked me that question, and as I thought, and I said I haven't read that book, and I thought, I haven't read any of my books. Like, I wrote them. Oh, there's 10 of them over the past 15 years. Um, I haven't read any of them. And then somebody else, uh, 
had a really interesting question. This woman asked about, do, do you still, how do you think about those earlier writings? Do you cringe when you read them? Uh, do you stand behind them? Do you wish nobody was reading them because that's not where you are? How do you think about your growth when you've written all these things that were launched out into the public space um, that reflect an ongoing evolution? Like, how, how do you think about that? Which I thought was a really perceptive, uh, interesting question. And uh, so we were, we have like one storage room. It's like a small closet where all of our family stuff goes because there's no basements, obviously, in Los Angeles. And uh, there's one shelf in there that has first editions of my books. It has um, the international versions. It just has, there's like a couple of copies of each of them. And I was in there the other day and thought, I saw that shelf and thought, I wonder if, what it would be like to read back through these books um, or just read random pages and see, like, what, what, was I, what was I up to? <laughs> and then I thought, oh, my word, that would be an interesting exercise to record. I should just do that. I should stack up. So there's 10 books. I should stack them all up. Can you hear the sound of these pages? Um, and then I should just randomly pick ver uh, up books and read sections and then see where it goes, see what it's like. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, you see why when I first had the idea, I was like, no one's going to be interested in that. And then Kristen was like, no, I think everybody will be interested in that. So um, let's do that. I'm going to read my own writing and see what I think about it. <laughs> out loud. <laughs> I'm already laughing. We haven't even started. So it seems like the first place to start, uh, it's not totally random because I was like, I should start with the first book. The first book was uh, that I wrote was called Velvet Elvis, and it came out in 2005, so I would have been writing it in 2004. So I was 33, turning 34 when I was writing this book. And... Uh, this obviously was my first book I hadn't written before. I swear to you, I spent 90% of my energy writing this book was spent wondering whether or not I was a writer, wondering whether it was any good. I swear to you, Head Games took up such a giant bulk of the output. Type a sentence, wonder if it's any good. Real people write books. What am I doing trying to do this? Like people, there's so many other better, there's actual authors out there. People would read that. Why would they ever read anything I have to say? So I remember even just holding it now, this uh, version, it has a yellow cover. Um, the original version was white and hardcover. By the way, when my designer, because um, generally the, the publisher makes... The, the cover art, but uh, part of the deal from the very beginning with the first book was that my designer would make the book cover, so we turned in a plain white cover with just tiny little lettering, which is completely ridiculous in publishing world, and um, the publisher was like, no one's going to buy this, no one's going to even know who wrote it or what, or <laughs> there were long philosophical 
market discussions about it. Um, but we just stuck to our guns because I had some sense like it needs to look like this. You don't know why. You just know it has to be a certain way. By the way, all of you out there who in some area, you just know how it has to be. And the people around you maybe don't. You're like, no, it has to be this color. No, it has to be designed this way. No, it has to be this long, this short, this wide, this thick, whatever it is. Yeah, those aesthetic design architecture issues. Uh, you often know where your path is based on the thing that you are most like laser focused. It has to be a certain way. But I remember that um, distinctly, like, no, the book has to look and feel a certain way. So I spent so much energy, though, typing and then pausing and wonder, wondering if I was any good. So if I were to do all over again, just write it. Maybe it's rubbish. We don't know. Just do it. Especially those of you who have like a head filled with, maybe I'm not any good. Maybe no one cares. Maybe it, we don't know. We don't know. All we know is you have something in you and something within you needs to make it or you're going to, something within you is going to die. So you just do that. I could have saved so much time. I haven't even read yet. and We've already <laughs> covered so much ground. So, um, this, oh, interesting. The first page is, uh, acknowledgements. Oh, this is classic. Right away in the acknowledgements, I <laughs> thanked my friend Tom Moss for starting the car. <laughs> I like put all these inside jokes in the acknowledgements. Um, my friend Tom Moss used to come hear me give sermons and he would sit out there and he had this, we had this running joke because he'd say, man, you were totally provoking people. Like you were really, people were like, he's like, I could sense people around me were like, oh my word, did he just say that? Like, can we, can, is, is that true? Is that, he's like, you were totally provoking. He's like, at the point, at one point I was like, I should probably go out and start the car. Meaning like he'd pull around to the entrance and we'd have to make a getaway because of something that I said that upset the masses. <laughs> so we had this running joke about sometimes he'd hear something that I did and then he'd be like, yeah, that was a total start the car one. <laughs> so he gets a shout out right in the beginning. Um, and then uh, this one, the preface is called Welcome to My Velvet Elvis, and then move... Oh, see, there's movement one, movement two. I didn't call them chapters. I called them movements. Uh, we're so clever, aren't we? We're, we're so like, I'm going to reinvent, I'm going to reinvent books. They're no longer chapters and movements. Also, there are seven of them, um, which makes me laugh. Apparently, I didn't have enough chapters to, to like, just be like, yeah, it's got 10 chapters. So, uh... I decided to rename chapters movements, which then sort of just throws you off the scent. You're like, oh, wow, I guess this guy, you know, he's doing something interesting. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay, here we go. Preface, welcome to my Velvet Elvis. Uh, let's just read a page here and see what I, how I start. In my basement, behind some bikes and suitcases. Right there, you know I'm living in Michigan. This is, what, 15 years ago? basement. I haven't had a basement in a decade. Uh, in my basement, 
Behind some bikes and suitcases and boxes sits a velvet Elvis. A genuine bought by the side of the road velvet Elvis. By the way, this Velvis that I'm talking to, this Velvis, this velvet Elvis that I'm talking about here, I still have it. It's here in the back house. The back house has like vaulted ceilings, and I put it up uh, directly behind me against the upper far wall so that when you walk in, if you look up, if you gaze up, you see it there. It's still going strong there. Uh, a genuine bought by the side of the road velvet Elvis. And to say that this painting captures the king in all his glory would be an understatement. It's not the young Elvis, the thin one with slicked back hair and those black and white concert photos in which he's playing a guitar that's not plugged in. And it's not the old Elvis, the big one in the shiny cape singing to old women in Hawaii. My painting is the pre-donut Elvis. <laughs> A touch of blue in the hair, the tall white collar that suggests one of those polyester jumpsuits, and those lips. If you stare long enough, you might even see them quiver. Hey, this is actually, I kind of like this. But I think the best part of my Velvet Elvis is the lower left-hand corner, where the artist simply wrote a capital R and then a period. R, period. Because when you're this good, you don't even have to write your whole name. What if, when the artist was done with this masterpiece, R had announced there was no more need for anyone to paint because he or she had just painted the ultimate painting? What if R had held a press conference, unveiled his painting, and then called on all painters everywhere to put down their brushes, insisting that since the ultimate painting had been painted, there was simply no need for any of them to continue their work? We would say that R had lost his mind. We say this because we instinctively understand that art has to, in some way, keep going, keep exploring, keep arranging, keep shaping and forming and bringing new perspectives. Man, oh man. See, that idea, you can, I can just feel it. This is such a groundbreaking idea to me at this. I would have been early 30s. I remember this sort of gradually dawning on me that I could think about faith, theology, spirituality, that instead of seeing it as all nailed down once and for all, I could see it as art, like you keep painting. Uh, this, this, even this, these first couple paragraphs, this was such a massive moment for me. Um, and I don't know how, I didn't really grow up with like a, I know some people have like had a catechism or they had like a training or a denomination that, that, that when it comes to like spiritual things, there was like a set, you know, like the party line or the, you know, what we believe. I didn't really have any of that growing up. I found the Jesus stories, uh, deeply compelling and mysterious and moving and inspiring and convicting. So I, I found the Christ uh, utterly compelling. But beyond that, I didn't have like a large, but it must have been going to seminary. And then my first job was in a church that was very like, this is the truth. Here are the whatever Bible verses to prove it. Um, the whole thing was like, this is the thing. And basically what you do is repeat this. 
So you can even see in this opening preface couple of chapters, you can see me like working through all that. It's like I instinctively in those settings was like, no, it's more interesting than that. You got to keep going. So this was like radical stuff for me. This was a... Uh, this was, uh, oh, and then I talk about the challenge for Christians. <laughs> there you go. Then is to live with great passion and conviction, remaining open and flexible. It's the challenge for all human beings, by the way, right? Uh, if it's of the Christ, then it's about what it means to be human. So you can even see there, I'm still very much in a world where you need to name things with particular religious terminology. Um, now I would just say, uh, to be fully alive as a human, <laughs> here's how it works, um, is to live with great passion and conviction, remaining open and flexible, aware that this life is not the last painting. Woo! Yeah, you can, solve, you can see also there, you can see me working through, there is this art to passionate living that comes from a center, that you live with conviction about the earth, about love, forgiveness, peace, justice, war, nonviolence. The, the challenge is how do you live with convictions, but also stay like what open and flexible? And it's like we've seen people who have strong convictions, but they're very brittle. Um, they talk again and again about how strong and how, how much they believe and all that, but then you just poke it slightly and you realize, oh, no, they're a wreck. Um, they're talking like this because they actually, it doesn't have root in their hearts. And then you also have uh, those I'm sure you've interacted with who are open and flexible and, hey, man, anything, but you keep trying to, there's no there there. There's no, you have a sense like they're just sort of spectating on the whole thing. Like they're not in the game. Like they're not actually acting in particular ways. Like they're not pursuing a course of action. It's all just, it's an openness to the point where it's unable to take steps in a particular direction to actually live this out and help make the world a better place. So you can see me wrapping my arms around this uh, this duality, these polarities of passion and conviction and open and flexible. And because, and especially at this age, because I'm just getting started at this age, uh, especially when, in like pastoral world that I was in, you just didn't really see that. Um, isn't that fascinating how much of just this first couple pages I'm trying to put all these new ideas that are brewing within me into this. I'm jamming them into my first book. <laughs> so interesting. Oh, and then um, oh, and then the preface ends with "Welcome to my Velvet Elvis." Wow, there we go. So I do the ultimate. Yeah, that's right. Um. Look, so then at the end of this preface, but this book is for those who need a fresh take on Jesus and what it means to live the kind of life he teaches us to live. Yeah, I remember a friend of mine read a first draft of this book, and he's, he was like, 
It's lame, he said. You're not owning it. You got to own it. <laughs> I remember him telling me that. You just have to tell people. 500 years ago, there was a reformation, and people rethought the whole thing. And he's like, you, you just got to own that. You're, it's time for another reformation. It's time for a whole new way of thinking about the whole thing. He's like, put that in the preface. So apparently that was, uh, and I remember hearing that and being like, whoa, dude. <laughs> you know that feeling when someone says something at the time in your life, you're like, whoa, that is, think about the things that at one point, 15 years later, somebody would have said to you and you would have been like, no way, that is crazy. <laughs> That's living on the edge, man. Apparently that was like, I do remember that moment of him saying that. He's like, dude, take all that stuff about Velvet Elvis and move it to the preface, make it its own preface and just throw it down in the beginning. I'm here to announce a new thing, which apparently made it into this sentence, but this book is for those who need a fresh take. So <laughs> apparently I didn't go as far as I remember the conversation that he, of him telling me I should go. Nevertheless, I'm owning it there in my 33-year-old self. I am owning my desire to articulate a whole new thing. Yeah. Man, oh man. Who knew? All that. Uh, this is really key, by the way, is whatever you think about your past, if we were all to go back there with you and watch you doing your thing, I think we'd all be, in, I think we'd all be like, nice, look at you. Look at you going for it there in your own way. Well done. Now, uh, movement one. Let's just take a quick stab at this. Because, um, you know, I'm not doing chat. Where we're going, there aren't roads. Where I'm going, there aren't chapters. So apparently my seven movements. Um, movement one is called jump. Uh, here's how it starts. Several years ago, my parents and in-laws gave our boys a trampoline. I remember that trampoline. It was behind the house on Romance Street. A 15-footer with netting around the outside so the kids wouldn't end up headfirst in the flowers. Since then, my boys and I have logged more hours on that trampoline than I could begin to count. Well, if I was writing in, in 04, that means we had a four-year-old, I had a four-year-old boy and a six-year-old boy. When we first got it, my older son, who was five at the time, there we go, discovered that if he timed his bounce with mine, he could launch higher than if he was jumping on his own. I remember the first time he called my wife, Kristen, out into the backyard to watch him jump off my bounce. Now, mind you, up until this point, he was maybe getting a foot higher because of this, his new technique. But this one particular time, when my wife was watching for the first time, something freakish happened in the space-time continuum. <laughs> Oh, my word, 15 years ago, I am still me. When he jumped, there was this perfect convergence of his weight and my weight and his jump and my jump. And I'm sure barometric pressure and air temperature had something to do with it too because he went really high. I don't mean a few feet off the mat. I mean he went over my head, 40 pounds of boy, clawing the air like a cat thrown from a second-story window and a man making eye contact with his wife thinking, this is not good. She told us she didn't think our new trick was very safe and we should be careful, which we were, until she went inside the house. It is on this trampoline that God has started to make more sense to me because when it comes to faith, everybody has it. What? That's my transition sentence. I went from trampolines to everybody has faith. 
people often tell me they could never have faith, that it's just too hard. The idea that some people have faith and others don't is a popular one, but it's not true. Oh, interesting. Everybody has faith. Everybody is following somebody. What often happens is people have, with specific beliefs about God end up backed into a corner, defending their faith against the calm, cool rationality of others, as if they both have faith and belief and others don't. But that's not true. Oh, interesting here what I'm doing. I'm trying to set up this whole trampoline image, because on a trampoline you have to jump. Everybody follows somebody, page three. All of us make decisions every day about what is important, how to treat people, what to do with our lives. These decisions come from what we believe about every aspect of our existence. We got our beliefs from somewhere. We've been formed, every one of us, by this complicated mix of people and places and things, parents and teachers and artists and scientists and mentors. We are each taking all of these influences and living our lives according to which teachings we have made our own. Uh, everybody's following somebody. Everybody has faith in something and somebody. Oh, interesting. See, this was like seriously radical juice for me at the time. Oh, I know. This must have been because uh, you can, you can, I can almost feel myself chafing against the world I was in, which was about, like, when you're a pastor, you know, people of faith, believers. There's sort of this, there was this accepted, that must be what I'm doing here, this accepted terminology, you know. And I remember people use phrases like unbelievers. Uh, So I'm, like, going after that right here. Like, no, everybody's jumping. Everybody is living according to a way. Everybody has faith that this path that they're on is the best path. Oh, that's interesting. Very interesting. I'm like really going after it here. (laughs) Oh, man. And then I do this. You are holding, here we go, end of page eight. You are holding a book in your hands. It has shape and volume and weight and all the stuff that makes it a thing. It has thingness. This book has edges and boundaries that define it as a finite thing. It's a book and nothing else. But the writers of the Bible go to great lengths to describe God as a being with no edges or boundaries or limits. God has no thingness because there's no end to God. Interesting. You can see, uh, by the way, I remember around this time, there was this wonderful woman. She was a literature professor. She used to come and listen to my sermons. One time she pulled, she was a uh, professor at this, at a university near where I lived, and uh, she was kind of a legend, and uh, I remember her, her pulling me over one time, and she said, she said, you're a, and, and, and uh, it was in this church service where the church services would happen, so there's like literally thousands of people getting ready for a church service to start, and she pulls me aside, and she says, you're a mystic. And these people here, they don't really get that about you. <laughs> I remember that. Carol Winters. It was like it was like this village elder gave me this way to think about myself. Because a mystic is the unmediated experience of the divine. The mystic doesn't need like a big power structure or an authority or an institution. The mystic had an experience. And they know it was real. They know it was true. So, yeah, they're just having the experience and then having the next one. 
Yeah, it's like she could sense it. You can sense it here when I talk about Moses and thingness. I'm, uh, yeah, you can feel that. I'm Because at this point, I was surrounded by a world of people who were like, you know, tell us the doctrines and give us the dogmas and quote the Bible verses. But you could hear me in these pages going, hey, hey, everybody can have a divine experience. It's almost like you can feel me in these pages going, hey, you don't need any of that to have the experience, to have the taste. That's good. It's helpful. It can do wonders. But ultimately, this is about you tasting something. Wow. Oh, page 14. I am far more interested in jumping than I am in arguing about whose trampoline is better. <laughs> Look at me go. Woo. <laughs> oh, and then I talk about one night I, I did a um, doubt night where people could come and I invited them to write down all their doubts. And then I just sat up front and read sheets of people people's doubts. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's that was the first book. Isn't that interesting how much... Yeah, you just got to embrace it. You just got to embrace where you were. You got to own every square inch of it. You got to just be like, that's what I was working out there. And I'm sure if I just kept picking random pages, there's way more there. Let's... Uh, what should we do next? Let's uh, look... Let's go ahead to, um, what year was this? This is a book called How to Be Here. So this book, this Velvet Elvis, that's 2005 it came out, uh, wrote it in 04. This is 2016, How to Be Here. And uh, this one is... You know, this one was interesting. I had had this title, carrying around this title, How to Be Here Forever. I was just completely enamored with this title. Um, and then I had hit my head when I was 30, uh, wakeboarding. I had this closed head injury, and I had a, an altered state. It lasted for a couple of days where my brain couldn't do past and future. It could only do present. Um, so I had like an out-of-body altered state in which I was in the in the full eternal now. And I had to be introduced to Kristen. I had to be introduced to our boys. Um, I had to be introduced to my life because I didn't know any of it, at least for about three days there. Um, when they brought me back from the hospital and we drove into the driveway, I was like, is this my house? Is this our house? And everything was new. So I went through our house and Kristen like gave me a tour of it. Uh, this all happened when I was 30. Um, but the experience, I couldn't talk about it for years because I didn't, because it was such a profound experience. I literally had to be told, I was like, what is my job? Um, what do we, and then I remember that I bought the boys in the room and I saw the boys and was like, wait, I said to Kristen, these are our kids? <gasps> yeah, that's what it was like. So I'd had that experience um, and it had shaped me. It had done something to me. Um, and then I'd had this whole body of 
content about the creative process, like making things and making your life and, and this need I had. I wanted people to know that you're creating, you're taking part in the ongoing creation of the world. And then when people talk about an artist as somebody who makes things, you're making things, like how you set up your calendar, how you spend your money, where you go, what you give your energy to, what you don't. That's all essentially art. So uh, this book, well, there were these two different, um, these two different bodies of content that I had sort of around in notebooks and in my computer. And then I... Uh, all of a sudden, one day, it was like, what if I combined them all into one book? And suddenly, it's like, there's the book. So let's randomly open it to page... This is how to be here. Oh, yes. Page 97. Uh, here's a chapter. I have a friend named Eddie. Over the past few years, we've spent countless hours surfing together because we both love the same break near where we live. Eddie, by the way, Eddie has a company called Kung Fu Tonic. Uh, he makes this tonic that you can also use as a salad dressing, and people swear that it makes them, if they're feeling sick, um, it's like horseradish mixed with garlic. He's got So anyway, Kung Fu ton Tonic, Eddie has become a legend for more than just his surfing. Eddie has long curly hair and usually surfs in a trucker hat, so his hair sticks out the sides, and he's always smiling. That's all true. Uh, it's all true. Um, I mean, meaning <laughs> you always need to tell the truth because the truth is always more interesting than anything you can make up. And I'm just laughing because that is such a perfect description of him. I have a friend named Greg who surfs the same break Eddie and I surf. Greg works in finance. His area of expertise is in analyzing massive amounts of data in the global commodities market. That last sentence is about the extent of my comprehension of what he does. He is obviously very intelligent. One day I paddled out and Eddie and Greg were already in the water because Greg had hired Eddie to coach him. Eddie is an excellent teacher and when Greg took a wave in, I commented to Eddie on how good Greg is getting. Eddie said that Greg's only challenge was to not overthink it. He then leaned in and smiled his Eddie smile and said, I keep telling Greg, stop thinking about shit that ain't happening. <laughs> That's right. Oh, is this you? You're here in the middle of your day doing whatever it is you do, but your mind is all over the place, thinking about the twos and nines and 47s, playing out possible scenarios. Oh, that's a reference to an earlier chapter. I should explain that. Wondering about certain outcomes, constructing conversations in your mind about what you'll say and then what they'll say and then how you'll respond, thinking about shit that ain't happening. My friend Chico, that's not his real name, but if I'm going to give him a fake name, it ought to be a good one, right? Runs a large nonprofit organization. <laughs> that's really funny that I named him Chico. He was telling me one day that he has all these big questions about where they're headed and how their work is going to evolve and how the challenges of the city they work in are changing and what adjustments all that is requiring his organization to make. He told me that these questions are literally keeping him awake at night. He said, there's so much to do. How do I know what to do next? But then, toward the end of our conversation, he mentioned that there's a key person in the organization who isn't on the same page as he is. He said it's a growing problem because he has to keep monitoring this person's work and correcting the work this person has done, had done that isn't in line with where the organization is headed. Do you see the problem? Chico has his one. Oh yeah, there's this whole earlier section called the first number is always a one. Uh, 
He's overwhelmed with all the work that needs to be done, but there's a one right in front of him. He has the wrong person in the wrong place. He needs to change that. He has a one. And yet what keeps him awake at night are the sixes and elevens and 24s. Start with your one. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So much of what gets us hung up is we're caught up in all these things down the road instead of the first number is always a one. That was like a mantra that was huge for me. The first number is always a one. So when you're overwhelmed with all the thing, where do I go and what do I do? Just ask, what's the one here? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Boy, I, this book, I like this book. Uh, <laughs> I like this book. By the way, part five, the first number, which is the whole section about that idea. I do a quote from Tommy Iommi, who was the guitar, guitar player for Black Sabbath. Uh, yeah, he has this great quote about the early moments of Black Sabbath. He says, and that's when we began writing our own songs. We knew we had something. You could feel it. The hair stood up on your arms. It just felt so different. We didn't know what it was, but we liked it. I just came up with this riff for the song Black Sabbath. I played dum da dum dum and it was like, that's it. We built the song from there. As soon as I played that first riff, we went, oh God, that's really great. But what is it? I don't know. Yeah, oh, that's so good. That's so good. All the members of Black Sabbath standing around going, what are we making? <laughs> what is this? I don't know. Yeah, that's a really big deal to me. That's, do I have the thing here about editing? Yeah, yeah, here we go. I do this whole thing about suspending judgment. Um, you suspend judgment on what you're doing. This is page 102, how to be here. As read by the author. <laughs> you start with your one, and then you suspend judgment on what you're doing. Because you don't know what you have when you start. No one does. When you are constantly judging what you're doing, you aren't here. You aren't present. You are standing outside of your life, looking in, observing. The time for judgment will come at some point, but in the moment, you only have the one, and then the two, and then the three. The first number is always a one. You don't know what you have when you start. And so you suspend judgment on whatever it is you're doing while you're doing it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times here. Uh, oh, here's one, page 129. The truth is... You want risk, not too much that it overwhelms you, but some. You want some risk in your life. Risk is where the life is. One morning, I was at the gym near our house when I overheard a man telling his friend that he was going to be DJing on the local radio station that night. He was holding a barbell in each hand, working his biceps, saying to his friend that he had some butterflies in his stomach because he had never DJed live on the air before, and he was really excited about it. 
How many people actually listen to a local radio station? Who cares? He was alive, a little nervous, not quite sure how it would go, chatting with his friend about his big opportunity. We love to believe that we are sophisticated, refined people with good taste and a calm, reasoned view of the world. But we're also very simple. We want a little risk in our lives because it keeps things interesting. It wakes us up. It gives us a sense that we're alive and breathing and doing something with our lives. So did I fail when I made that Dickie Shoehorn book? Of course not. Because, say it with me now, Dickie lives. <laughs> oh man, I need to give you a little context there. Ooh, I like that section. I like that risk. Truth is, you want risk. Oh yeah, because I, I tell this whole story. I made this kid's book called Dickie Shoehorn, and my friend Alan Close, shout out to Alan, did these fantastic illustrations for it. But nobody wants to publish my book, Dickie Shoehorn. It was called The Adventures of Dickie Shoehorn, Volume 1, Under Dickie's Bed. Uh... Yeah, to this day, I haven't gotten Dickie Shoehorn. By the way, is that one of the best names ever? Come on. Dickie Shoehorn. When I came up with that name, I came up with that name because my uh, boys at night, when I tucked them in bed, I would tell them a Dickie Shoehorn story. And uh, so year after year, there was a whole stretch there when they were young. And Dickie has Uncle Vince, and he goes out trying to catch squirrels and... He dropped a friend of his off a roof, but the friend was fine, and his Uncle Vince drained his swimming pool and then filled it with milk and cereal so Dickie could swim in his favorite cereal, because one time when Dick, Dickie was at Uncle Vince's house, he said, I love this cereal so much, I could swim in it. Are you with me on this? This is classic. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I put the book in a... But nobody was interested, not one publisher, page 117. No one had even the slightest interest in seeing Dickie live. And so I put the book in a file in a crate in my garage, and that's where it's been to this day. Oh my word, it's right, like literally that crate is right behind me on a shelf in that storage room next to all these books. Yeah, Dickie Shoehorn, he lives, but he doesn't live. You know what I mean? I always thought that would be the best series of kids' books. Whenever you create anything, you take a risk, and that includes your life. It may work out, it may not. It may be well-received, it may not be well-received. Sometimes you do things and you get results, and that effort leads to more effort, which leads to more results, and away you go, success building on success. And then other times, you try something new and it ends up in a crate in your garage because no one is interested. Yeah, it's always a risk to take action. It might not work. It might blow up in your face. You might lose money. You might fail. No one may get it, but that's not the only risk. There's another risk, the risk of not trying it. How is not trying a risk? You risk settling and continuing in the same direction in the same way wondering about other paths and possibilities, believing that this is as good as it gets, while discontent gnaws away at your soul. Oh, man, Brother Rob throwing it down, while discontent gnaws away at your soul. That's a sentence. 
I remember asking a man with a PhD who has had the same job for more than a decade what keeps him inspired in his work, and he sighed and said, well, not much. Once or twice a year, I hear something that's kind of encouraging. You could see in his eyes as he said this that he's bored, weary, cynical. Somewhere along the way, he settled, buying into the lie that this must be as good as it gets. There are always two risks. There's the risk of trying something new, and there's the risk of not trying it. You may write the book and no one is interested. You may decide not to write the book and then find yourself wondering, what if I had made that book? Either way, there's risk. And sometimes stepping out and trying something new is actually the less risky thing to do. The question is, what are the two risks here? And then which path is actually less risky? There's a place within each of us that is the source of our life. It's the well, the tank, the engine, the overflow in our soul that we live from. In the wisdom of Proverbs, it's the place in our being where the waters run deep. Um, and I could go on. Man, oh man, oh man, oh man. Oh, here we go. When you're bored, restless, longing for something more, unfulfilled, feeling like you've settled, haunted by the sense of being trapped in your own life, these are the deep waters of your soul speaking to you, telling you that something is wrong, something is missing, something needs to change. It's written in Proverbs that it takes insight to draw out those deep waters in your heart. Sometimes we don't take the risk because of something that happened in the past. We tried something and it blew up in our face. And so whenever there's a new opportunity, all we can think about is what happened back then. Is this you? Are you dying where you are right now, but unable to take a leap forward because it seems too risky? If you stay there, you may continue to feel like you're dying. Now that is risky. Ho, 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 ho. Come on. Woo. This is actually, this is like, I, this is like really interesting to read all this stuff. This came, you know, actually, I feel uh, it comes from deep, like deep in my heart. I'm like reading this, thinking about the hours that I spent and how much this all matters to me. It's interesting to, uh, so this would have been, like this book, How to Be Here, was three years ago, written, whatever, four or five years, you know, in the years before that. Uh, yeah, it's like, uh, it's like uh, all of this has such history for me. And you just got to embrace the whole thing. You just got, that's where I was. I was figuring it out. Ah, oh, it's so interesting. Yeah, it's interesting if I, I think about that woman's question. Do you stand behind what you wrote? Do you agree with all of it? Do you, do you disagree? Are you embarrassed? Do you, are you proud? How do you think about it? Here's how I think about it. That's where I was. Yeah. Little old me, that's where I was, working it out. That's where you are. Yeah, you're just trying to figure it out. You're just giving it everything you got. <laughs> That's how it works. Oh, my word. Okay, now, 
we have that that was two books. That was just two books. And that was a while. I think we might have a series on our hands because this is like really fun. I don't know how it is for you, but for me, this is like really, really interesting. And there are eight other books to grab from, let alone these two that we looked at. Um, I think this is part one. And I think we'll come back and... uh, We'll do a part two in the next episode, and we'll just keep going and see what else comes up. By the way, if you have some ideas about something that you've thought about doing, even these books right here in my own sort of fumbling around trying to make books and write sentences and make it all make sense, just go for it. Just go for it. Even that last section about withholding judgment because you don't know what it is. If you've got something percolating within you, if you've got some like, what if? In my early 20s, I distinctly remember making a vow uh, that I would not live my life wondering what if. And that's got, I mean, that's kicked up some serious dust, right? There's been, there's been a fair bit, of, uh, <laughs> fair bit of blood on the floor from that and heartache, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I distinctly remember that. I was living in California thinking, I am not going to be somebody who lives wondering, what if I, um, when I have a, like a what if, and it doesn't go away. Because if you're like, what if I banged my head against this hammer, right? Like, that's not the kind of what if. I'm talking the what if that doesn't go away. It's like the base note, what if. What if I tried that? What if I uh, signed up for that? What if I called them and asked if I could follow them around for a day, see what their life is like? I distinctly remember that. It's interesting now with this stack of books here. Um, Because the first book started with, what if I tried to write a book? That's like insane. Only like authors and like serious, like amazing people write books. I don't (laughs) know. What am I doing trying to do that? But you just suspend judgment. Who cares? I don't know. It might be, it might end up literally Dickie Shoehorn. My Dickie Shoehorn book is there over my shoulder in a storage closet. Never, no one's ever seen it. Um, yeah, that could happen. That has happened for me lots of times. I could tell you stories, uh, all the no's and rejections, and no, that's not that good. We're not going to do anything with it. Yeah, so even just now, just just covering these two books, uh, if you've got some curiosity about something, yeah, yeah, spirit is in the curiosity. Curiosity is the engine. Uh, I think calling... We've talked about this a ton of times. Calling is overrated, and curiosity is underrated. I realize all these books, they were born out of curiosity. Could I like put that in words in a book for people? Would that be possible? It began, they began with a question. Yeah, so, so every one of you, if you have a question lurking within you, a question comes out of curiosity. What if I tried that? What if I made that? What if I pursued that line of inquiry? What would that what, what would that be? Where would it go? Would it be any good? Would it Yeah. Well, we already have our answer. There's two risks. Yeah, well, that's pretty risky. Yeah, so is not trying it and living wondering what if. Yeah. So, this has been uh part 1 of reading. 
<laughs> me reading me. <laughs> and uh, we'll just try it again because there's lots more pages. There's like a couple thousand more pages here in front of me and see where it takes us. Grace and peace, my friends.